On this episode of Yachting Yarns, I'm talking with Pam Graham and Lynn Drusi about their eight-year adventure, which took them halfway around the world. They set off to see the world in 1992, but the idea of the trip started years earlier. Both of us met in 85, and Len said, I am only going to work for another five years, and then I'm going to change boats and go and live on the boat. And I thought, hmm, I don't know that I want to live on a boat stuck up a creek or in the Mediterranean. I would rather travel. So we put the two things together, and at, at the end of five years, we decided that was the time to go. I was brought up by the seaside I, in Portsmouth, and I just loved boats. I was in, into boats all the time. And as soon as I could afford it, I built a model dinghy that I could sail. The, the last company I worked for told them I was only going to work for five years, and then I was going to go and sail off around the world, and they didn't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so Len shared his love of the sea with you. Well, when we met, he was uh, working on his little wooden boat and he invited me to go on board. And so we went sailing up and down Portsmouth Harbour and I loved it. I loved it. Absolutely adored it. So when you decided you were going to be a bit more serious about all your boating and take off for longer journeys, how did you decide what sort of boat you would need for this? Yeah, that's an interesting thing. By that time, we had bought a 30-foot boat and we were already travelling across the English Channel to France on a regular basis. And we're also up and down the south coast of Britain. And so we were thinking, let's go further. But we didn't know whether we could do it on a 30-foot boat or whether we needed anything a bit larger. He took a month off work and I I had a month because I was teaching in schools. That month we spent going round the south coast of Britain across to France, round the corner down almost to the Bay of Biscay, and then came back. Every time you went anywhere, everything had to be put away on this little tiny boat because it moved an awful lot more than a bigger boat. So we decided that we would look around for something of 40 foot plus. If you were going to upgrade from a 30 footer to a 40 footer, what sort of features did you think you would need for ocean going travel? Well, we were living and breathing boats. I read everything I could on boats. I read books, articles, magazines. Uh, I knew what I wanted. I wanted a heavy displacement vessel that would take big seas and something comfortable. And we sure got the right boat. We end up with... Uh, 41-foot Transworld. That's it, Transworld. Uh, designed by Bill Garden, who is a Canadian or American. It had been built in Taiwan, so it had some Chinese dragons on the front. When we saw it, we just loved it. It was a clipper bow, and it was pretty, but it was also very functional, very heavy indeed. It was what you call a classic design, had mock carvel planking, very heavy boat. Now, the very first day when you finally picked up your new boat, you did have a few problems, didn't you? When we picked up the boat, we had travelled on our 30-foot boat all the way to Plymouth, did all the registration and all the paperwork we had to, and then we had to dodge the gales because the gales were coming through very regularly with a little respite between, and we had to try and time it so that we did the little darts from one place to another without getting caught too much with this uh, new boat. Getting used to it was quite a difficulty. We took it, first of all, just round the corner from Plymouth into Dartmouth. And even then, the visibility came down. A, a fishing boat that had just been ahead of us earlier disappeared into the mist. And then all of a sudden, the mist cleared, and he was standing over by the cliff. So we both thought, right, well, let's aim for him. At least we can know where that is. 
And then we went into Dartmouth, being taken by him virtually. He just led us all the way. We never saw him again because he went far up the, the um, inlet. But uh, that was a wonderful sort of first experience and a bit frightening to think that we could have lost all visibility and had to head out to sea. The sky went black, black as night, and um, we just dived into the nearest we got into jetty Dartmouth. we could find. That's right, yeah. <laughs> we found the end of a jetty and we just went alongside it and we just sat down, took a deep breath, I think we've got a gin and tonic out or something. <laughs> so that makes an interesting start to your big adventure. What was the first big hurdle you faced? Oh, yeah, I think the first one, actually, was leaving the Isle of Wight. We got along to cows, and we had a little flat that we were doing up so that we could let it give us an, an income while we were away. As we were leaving, the gale hadn't quite gone right down, and suddenly we were being tossed around up and down in very steep waves. On our bowsprit, we've got a great big long bowsprit out the front, and we had a walkway on top of it. And this was like trellis work. And suddenly they came flying past our heads in the cockpit. And we thought, oh no, what's happened now? And we looked out quickly, and of course it was the whole platform because the water was coming up so far under the bowsprit, it was snapped it all off. We did eventually manage to save a couple, use it in the cockpit, but generally speaking, we lost a lot. So when we were going around the coast of France, we were looking for people who sold wood. For ages and ages, Len was looking for tacks or nails, and they weren't any. And we said, well, how are we going to do this? And uh, this guy came up to us and said, don't worry. He said, I'll take you to my house. He said, I have plenty. And and we went along to him and we got to know his wife. And uh, they were just charming. They couldn't have done enough to help. The other one was the wood shop we found. I, I wanted teak. So I went in and I said to the guy in the shop, there's ever a uh, teak? And he frowned. And I said, Tectonis grandis, which is the Latin. And uh, he said, oh, tech, tech. Fresh air, fresh air. Very dear, very dear. So we tried him on. Oh, Iroka. He said, Do you have any Iroka? Oh, he knew that. Yes, he had that. So the next walkway was made of Iroka, which is um, a very lookalike teak wood. Much stronger, actually. And when we stopped in one of the towns in France, Benaday, uh, we were alongside a jetty, and Len was down below on a beautiful saloon table that was inlaid with wood. And he used that to make the walkway. <laughs> it's a bench. <laughs> How did you go about organising yourselves on board? Well, we set ourselves goals because we'd never really done more than one night, overnight trips to France. Uh, so this time we said, right, the first trip then is going to have to be longer. And we took us to Morlaix Bay and to Primel. That was about 23, 25 hours. But on this one, we actually did a proper watch system. And um, so we got to Primel and then we anchored outside little Ile de Bat. Living on the boat must have allowed you lots of time to explore all the countries you visited. Our reasons for doing this was I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to know how people were and how people live. It was to live like them, not to go as a tourist. But what we were doing at that time was really just getting to know the boat. So as you got to know the boat and went further afield, you left France and found yourself in Spain and Portugal. How did you find them? Spain was really... Um, Two little stops that we made. One was it, because the gales were coming back a bit too soon, we had to take avoiding action and go into the northern um, coast of Spain. 
to a little area, they call them. They're like a, a big gorge, very high cliffs either side. And then you go out into a big bay and you can sit on a, a mooring there and you're sheltered. That was Carino. And then from Carino, we went round the corner to Coruña. There we just get ourselves ready to do the next trip down to Portugal. We did have radar and we met this couple on the boat. They wanted to follow us because we had the radar. But it was an enormous decker thing. It was uh, something like four feet across. It was one of those old-fashioned ones that you see in the old war films yeah. where you see the needle go round and the minute it's gone round, it's just, oh, the picture has disappeared. We weren't finding it as helpful as perhaps it could be. You had to look through a rubber eyepiece That's right, to see yeah. the screen. Well, we went straight on down that coast and, of course, you come to Portugal quite quickly and we ended up in Oporto, which is where all the port is made. And so we saw a lot of interesting things. The boats there that uh, carried the barrels down to the sea, oh, they, they were very, very interesting. And so we heard music every night because people would, that tourists would be gathering at the port places and they'd be entertained. Dancing in the streets. Dancing in the streets, all <laughs> sorts of things. On the wet cobbles. Yes, very high. Walking away from the sea, you were pretty well climbing up the road that they were so steep. In the different ports around the world, what sort of other travellers did you meet? The first one was the Frenchman who ended up across our bowsprit. <laughs> and he shouted out, you have, you have dragged your ancha. And uh, we said, upwind. <laughs> and he thought about it and thought, no, that's impossible. It must be my fault. So he apologised. <laughs> and the other one, which wasn't quite so funny, was the uh, harbour we went into. And it said, do not enter this harbour with more than 20 knots of wind. And it was blowing about 30. Yeah, and we found out why. Nasty well went in, and of course, we went in with it. And under those circumstances, once you're committed, you just go and hope for the best. From Portugal, we went right down around the corner to Villamora, which is a very, very big marina, enormous marina. I think probably most people end up there either before leaving for a bit there or leaving to go around Europe. That's where you need your bicycle to go to the toilet. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And we had bicycles on so board. Do, yeah. <laughs> when we were exploring with the dinghy outside the marina, there were some rocks uh, to the right of us. We went along and saw a cave, and we love caves. And we went into the cave in a very large end. And as we got there, we looked at a smaller entrance to the left, and suddenly the water was going downhill. So we thought, that's a bit of a phenomenon. So we took the dinghy and we went uphill out of the cave through the little uh, entrance. And then we turned around and we came back in. And then we had another person come down and they were doing the same thing. Because it was such a narrow entrance, it was producing this sort of cascade down into the cave. And we hadn't seen anything quite like this. At that time, this was a new thing for us. It wasn't rushing water, though. We only had a little dinghy with a little two-horse outboard. And it was no trouble going uphill. There was no current of water no. rushing. We didn't have a camera. We didn't have a camera. We, never, we lost such a lot of things in that way. We didn't, have, we didn't take pictures of everything. Not like today where people take photographs of everything, but you do have those lovely memories. After Spain and Portugal, you are now going to up the ante and give yourself a slightly bigger challenge. 
we decided after having done overnighters, this 23, 25-hour trip, we would do three days. And that would be three days from Portugal to the Canary Islands, the first of the Canary Islands, Lanzarote. And we really had to keep a watch system properly because you can't keep going for three days without proper sleep. We were building up until we felt uh, confident about going into the ocean for days and days and days. So now you're away from the coast, you're further out in the ocean on your way to the Canary Islands. So what sort of sea life did you come across? Yes, I think the first thing that surprised us was um, off the Portuguese coast when we left, we saw a fish on the top of the water, on the surface of the water, and it was flapping one fin back and forth. And it was a face on the top of the water and it was only oval and it had one or two fins. And in the end, when we looked it up, we found that it was a lunar fish, a moon fish. And people ate those just as as much as you'd eat any fish. Don't know how they got around. (laughs) No, because it only had a a fin on the top, a dorsal fin, and a fin underneath. There really wasn't any tail or anything else. The body was just spherical. Mm. It's weird. Well, that would be a little strange, an almost perfectly round fish with just tiny little fins and virtually no tail. This is all part of travelling the world, seeing strange creatures and meeting other yachties. What sort of people did you come across during your travels? We, We did that three day trip and Lanzarote, and we met some fantastic people there. There was a, a group um, in three different boats from Czechoslovakia. And this, of course, is in 1992 when Czechoslovakia came out of their business as Russia. They, they were able to get away from the country if they wanted to. So we met these people who were on some small boats, and we all got together. They, were, they could play music as well, so... Out came the piano, out came the guitars, the harmonica, the recorders. They, they knew some English wartime songs. And then they brought some of their food and we had some of our food. And it really made such a wonderful evening. I'll never forget it again. I had to fetch them in my dinghy because all they had was a canoe. And that was strapped alongside the boat. And uh, later on, we had a, a group on board. We offered the lady there a shower. And she hadn't had a shower for ages. And she she just looked at the boat and said, you have so much room. <laughs> There's us two rustling around inside this enormous boat. And they're all scrunched together. I have to pick you up on something. Did you say you took a piano with you? Yes. Yeah. I, I did a lot of research as to um, what sort of a piano I could have on board a boat. And I came up, um, I was introduced to a Yamaha, which was the first of the touch-sensitive keyboards. Basically, it was a piano, but it had about another five voices that you could use, like a harpsichord or an organ. Um, And so this was my pride and joy, kept in the cupboard in the centre of the saloon. We often used to find ourselves on shore, play music. Uh, In the Caribbean, in Grenada, there was a guy there who played the flute, and he always invited everybody. He had a catamaran, which made it a lot more room. So there was a, two flautists, a violinist from America, a piano from me, Len harmonica or recorder, and I think, no, I think that's about all. But that's the sort of thing that people take around with them. <laughs> Well, music is, of course, universal, and it's great that people from different countries can all come together and play music. So tell me, what were your impressions of the Canary Islands? Uh, They're very interesting because the south of every Canary Island is really riotous sunshine and almost tropical growth. 
But you go to the north of the islands and almost invariably it is high land, mountainous, and you're in a gale at the top and you're freezing cold. We hired a car in and we were taken by car on another one. So we went to Lanzarote and then we went to Gran Canaria. And that was a lovely thing because my young brother married and they were having a honeymoon on Gran Canaria at the same time as we were there. So we could take them out sailing for a day. And Len's younger sister was coming with her husband and having a holiday for a week. And again, we were there when they came to Gran Canaria. And we also took on two crew to come and join us because they belonged to our club. And they heard what we were going to do and they asked if they could please do the Atlantic. <laughs> so we took them on board. And this time we moved uh, from Gran Canaria. We then went down to, but I think it was Tenerife. The port was called Los Cristianos. We had the boat pulled out so that we could put this anti-fouling around the bottom and any other repairs could be done if necessary. We didn't have a lot to do. But we did have the um, scrubbing of the hull and then the repainting of it. Our new crew helped us a lot. That was terrific. It was in the Canaries that we bought this video camera. It was well, something I said I'd never do. Yeah, and we produced a video of our trip in the Atlantic so that people at home could have an idea of what it was like on board crossing yeah. the ocean. Well, one, one person that was very interested was my father. He kept a map of the world and a, a little flag stuck in everywhere <laughs> where we were. And we'd move about eighth of an inch. <laughs> and your uncle, he was terribly ill when we got there the last time. He just stayed fit enough and look at our videos. And he grilled us. He absolutely asked us questions about everything that we'd done. Two weeks later, he'd gone. What a lovely gift, being able to share all those memories with him. So when you left the Canaries, you obviously had a much bigger trip to get to the Caribbean. What systems did you put in place for this much, much longer trip? I worked out a watch system whereby you had two hours on watch and you could have that two hours with somebody if they cared to wait up. And then you had two hours on your own. And then you had two hours at the other end if you wanted to have company. And what happened was that every day, one person didn't lose any sleep at all. So they did the cooking. And that helped us a lot. Most people didn't want two hours. After an hour, if you needed to do any sail changes or you needed to do any uh, radio changes or anything like that, that was the only time that you would need somebody with you for a lot length of time. So generally speaking, we would spend a few moments together, get the lie of the land, what course you were on, check everything, and then that per the other person could go to bed. The 1990s wasn't that long ago. What sort of navigational equipment did you have to keep you on course? We got a big chart we didn't have any chart plotters or any any electronics or anything rulers and parallel rules and compasses and that we'd all learned at our uh, navigation classes and so we put to uh, practical use all the things that we had learned we listened to people as well and read books and the general feeling was you can make a run line straight down to the island you want in the Caribbean. But we decided not to do that. We went down the African coast a bit more. 
down towards the Cape Verde Islands. And then we took a trip straight across to St. Lucia. It was a warmer way of doing it, getting warm earlier. And it was also, with the southwesterlies, it was easier to get an angle on the winds. Otherwise, you would be going southwest the whole time. So it could be a really long slog. Tell me a bit about cooking on board. Who was the cook? <laughs> oh, when Len was the pizza king. So you got pizza every time Len was on cooking. We had flying fish come on board and they would make use of those for our meal in the evening. We more or less helped ourselves to breakfast and uh, lunches. And uh, I, we ran out of uh, fresh meat because we didn't have a freezer on board, but we had a fridge. And we took in as much fresh food as we could and we had as much fresh uh, vegetables and um, fruit yes. as possible. We had everything in net so that they didn't get bruised and we had to keep turning out the potatoes because they kept going bad. <laughs> we baked bread every day. We had an oven. When Led said that we had to see what we needed, but when we bought the boat, we bought a new oven, a top-of-the-range Force 10 oven. An oven and four burners set us in really good stead. You could do anything. Now, I believe it was in the Caribbean Sea that you had a very close encounter with a whale. This 30-foot whale, because we could see him alongside our boat and estimating how big he was. We could have touched And it. he went underneath the boat once and came up and had a look at us and he went back underneath the boat again and had a good look at us. I didn't dare go down below to get a fil- to get a camera because I'd have missed everything. Yeah. But so we just watched him and watched him and then up he came and looked us in the eye and then off and he blew as if to say goodbye. It really was so magical. He smelt his breath. So, yeah. oh. <laughs> the, uh, the only uh, accidents we ever heard about whales was at night, they sleep on the surface. And if you happen to be in an area where there are a number of whales traveling, you really have got to watch very, very carefully. And one boat went into a whale and the people were very badly hurt. Um, they lost some of their keel. They had to put some, do some mending out at sea. That was the only tragedy, really, that came when the whales were hit while they were sleeping and you killed them because they couldn't survive. I don't think many people realise that whales sleep on the top of the ocean and can be a hazard. Luckily, you didn't come across any sleeping whales and you did finally arrive in the Caribbean islands. What were your impressions when you got there? St Lucia is the name of the island in the Caribbean and it's part of the Leeward and Windward Islands. And we went across the north coast and round the corner into the first main bay, which was Rodney Bay. But there was a big Atlantic at rally for cruisers on at around about this same time. And the marinas were all booked up solid. So we went on a little bit further to a lovely little bay, absolute paradise to look at. And we went in between these very, very high cliffs. And there was a little tiny marina at the top end on the right. And we managed to persuade them to let us have one berth for a few days so that we could just settle down and leave everything and not have to worry about anchors and stuff like that and anchoring. Mm-hmm. And this was a hurricane hole. And one of the hotels in it was called Hurricane Hole. Mm-hmm. And the other one was called Doolittles. And apparently it featured in the film okay. Doolittles. Yeah. That Marigot Bay was uh, the name of the bay. Absolutely mm-hmm. idyllic. And our friends lived in a beautiful house looking, overlooking this cliff that we spent such a lot of time with then because she used to be um, a member of our club 
and she had taken herself off on a 50-foot boat and crewed for them to get herself to the Caribbean. And now she was working on the computerizing their airports and ports. She was a very clever girl. She's a whiz kid on the computer. One thing you haven't mentioned was the approaching St. Lucia. Where we oh. saw flares go up for somebody in distress, and it was quite a way off to the uh, north of us. And we thought, do we go or do we not go? We just then we had a, a call on 16, which is the normal channel, and it was a plane flying over, and it was an American warship just letting off flares for the fun of it. And this pilot on the aircraft ripped into the captain of this battleship and told him <laughs> what he thought. And he, he really told him off because he said, what you're not thinking of, is the people that might come to your rescue. They might be put in jeopardy by your stupid actions. You spent so much time in the Caribbean, it was about three years. You earned yourselves a bit of a reputation. Oh, yes, yes, we just called ourselves the Caribbean crawlers. <laughs> because people couldn't believe that we spent so much time there, but we were always visiting a different island or we're taking people. We had lots of visitors from England that came across and spent a month with us, one couple, Another a couple came for a couple of weeks. Then son and his girlfriend came for a couple of weeks. His daughter and, and boyfriend came for a couple of weeks. And my mum came out. That was wonderful. She came out to Lisbon and she also came out to the Caribbean. Yeah. You saw and did a lot in the Caribbean islands. Tell me about some of the highlights. Oh, they're very interesting because, again, they're very rugged on the east side because that's their leaf, that's their uh, windward side, that's where they're getting all the rough sea. And on the other side, on the west side, they're beautiful beaches and lovely inlets and jungle rivers, interesting histories to them, and the people are interesting people and of course our crew didn't go home immediately so we've still went up to other islands either side of St Lucia. After three years even though you're traveling you're actually locals yourself by now what sort of interactions you have with the real locals? We were taken around by locals too and entertained in local houses I think it was overall it was three years we also did fly back to England at some point. We've, I mean, there were so many islands there. Each one is a country on its own. Yeah. We went to the Trinidad Carnival twice. Yes. Not to be missed. Incredible. Went to classical concerts there, given by steel drum uh, orchestras. Classical music on a steel drum. But these were all chromed or silvered or mm. something, and... The sound out of them was just exquisite. And I can't believe that the Eine Kleine Nacht music by Mozart sounded so beautiful. Incredible. <laughs> Where we were, St. Lucia, you've got St. Vincent down south, you've got all the islands of the Grenadines, and then you've got Grenada, and then 19 hours later, you've got Trinidad. And across from Trinidad, you've got Venezuela. So we had to go visit them as well. And then when you come back up the islands, you've got Martinique, and you've got... You've got and you've got Guadeloupe, and you've got Antigua, mm. and then you've got St. Martins, and that's two countries there. It's Netherlands and French. Mm. And then you've got Puerto Rico, and then we decided not to go any further. Well, I don't know whether we should have done, but we, did, we didn't go any further. We came back down the island, and then we... Um, we, we did some interesting sailing in tropical storms too, yeah. which was lots of fun. We did quite funny. a bit of scuba diving. The was where 
Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau yeah. his headquarters. Yeah, so we were always looking yeah. for other things. Yeah. I'm sure the Caribbean islands are a popular destination. How do you think the locals felt about all the yachties coming and going from their marinas? Well, I suppose well, they're fairly used to people. They're fairly used to boats coming and going. Um, I think in the Caribbean, we were a meal ticket. In other places, uh, we were like royalty, and they treat us like that. It sounds like you had great adventures and met very interesting people while you were in the Caribbean islands. What made you decide to move on? I think we probably had enough, actually. The three years, we'd flown um, back to UK in 95. We decided then that we would go on after that, enjoying more different countries. Another reason why we left the Caribbean was we met a lot of people who said the Pacific is really nice. All the islands are beautiful and the people are friendly. They were totally different. And they were not so used to seeing boats. No. So it was more interesting. We're going to leave this episode of Yachting Yarns now as Pam and Len move on from the Caribbean islands and we'll pick it up in the next episode as they continue their travels. And don't forget to check out their personal photographs on the Yachting Yarns Facebook page. We'll see you next time for Yachting Yarns.